I might be, because it might be a miracle if I get through this. I'm just going to warn you all right now. I'm not feeling my best, so pray for me. I took two COVID tests, and I flunked them both. That means I didn't have COVID. Yeah, it all depends on how you look at it, you know, I mean, I took one of them, my son goes, did you flunk? And I'm like, I guess, you know, negative, so negatives are positive. Now, we're going to have a good day, folks, Um, because I didn't, I didn't want to give up on this because I am feeling better, number one. Number two, I've missed y'all this week. Since about Wednesday, I've just um, been low energy. And um, I thought, well, I'm not, I'm not calling it in. I'm not calling in sick because Michael Jordan's my hero. And, you know, he, he did some of his best games when he was on the, on the sick list, but now, I'm excited to keep learning about prayer with you. So, anyway, let me just, you know, I'm kind of easing into this, but I don't know. Hello, folks out there in TV land, if you're watching us and joining us. I hope that uh, you have heard about this lesson, this study on prayer. I welcome you back. Um, and for all of you here, I want to encourage you to tell others about this. Um, as I've said all along, I'm sharing with you my notes on prayer. This is a workshop more so than a class. So if you get something out of this, great. Um, I hope that what we all get is an encouragement to try to develop our prayer skill. In fact, you know, some of this reminds me of art class because I was an art major at the University of Arkansas. Um, I was, you know, went into that thinking I had one career path all figured out. Got one year into the University of Arkansas, got involved with the campus ministry there. God made it clear to me that I needed to be doing more than trying to become the, um, you know, the, next, the next hire at Marvel Comics, and which University of Arkansas program wasn't going to help me with that at all. So my life takes another direction. But let me tell you, being an art major is great because, you know, you talk about subjectivity. I mean, you know, you can scribble on a piece of paper, and if you show that you did a little bit of effort, you know, they can't really give you a bad grade. I mean, it's like, well, you know, we can see that you're trying, and so, you know, boy, let me tell you, it's pretty good. So that's the deal. In this class... You can get a good grade as long as you try out some of the stuff because grades don't mean much in an art class. You're just supposed to always be working on your craft, and that's the way it is with prayer. We need to always be working on our craft. Now, I want to sh- show you, I want to introduce you to some of my friends who uh, are, are helping me through this class, and um, going to put it on the screen, but once upon a time, they used to have these things called books, and um, they're just like this. 
So this week, Randy Harris has helped me. Randy's got two books that I know of, and this one's called Soul Work, Confessions of a Part-Time Monk. And Randy, Randy's from right up the road here in Bentonville. And um, he, was, um, he was one of our instructors at uh, Abilene Christian. I had him as a uh, doctoral student. He was one of my instructors. But um, anyway, he, he talks about his experiences trying to, to learn, uh, in, in this book, trying to learn with um, hermits in a monastery. And in chapter 9, he talks about four ways of praying. So that's been very helpful to me this week. A book that I always return to is Anthony Ash, or as we called him, Tony Ash. And um, my favorite Tony Ash story, because Tony was at ACU when, when I was there. And uh, Tony is a great storyteller, a great student of C.S. Lewis. He's, um, he's gone on. Uh, now he's he's no longer with us, but <laughs> I remember that there was a time when Abilene Christian was getting a lot of criticism, and um, you know th- this is back in the days when you'd write people up. You, you know you know, you understand what I mean by that phrase? You know you'd write people up. You know somebody would get blackballed and they would get written up, and they'd be in this journal. You know this person said this, this person said that, and we had a lot of professors at Abilene Christian that were getting written up, and and <laughs> Tony was like. Why don't I ever get written up? He was like, nobody ever writes me up. <laughs> and he, and he, did, a, he did a lecture at uh, the lectureship that w- was never mean-spirited. And that's probably one of the reasons why he never got written up. But he said, hey, if you're doing that, you know, if you're, you're passing along this, this um, criticism, then I want to call you to repentance. And he thought, surely that'll get me written up. And it never got him written up. <laughs> and he, <laughs> he was speaking the truth, but godly man and and finally wrote his book on prayer, and this is, I I think, a a great comprehensive work on prayer in the New Testament. I've always been a fan of Richard Foster. I've never met Richard Foster. I don't know him. Uh, Richard Foster, in 1978, wrote a book called The Celebration of Discipline. In The Celebration of Discipline, he goes back and discovers the, um, the old practices of the Uh, the spiritual disciplines within the church. Nobody had really written a book like that. Uh, Well, not for centuries at least, before Foster wrote that book in the 70s. And now it's considered a classic. So he takes one of those, prayer, and in this book he expands on it. It's called Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home by Richard J. Foster, the author of Celebration of Discipline. Now, if I remember right, Foster comes out of the tradition of the uh, Society of Friends, or as we know them, the Quakers. Oh. You thought they just made oats, but he, um, he, he goes into different dimensions of prayer. What I love about Foster is Foster has a rich understanding of, of Christian history and the, uh, the resources that are out there uh, from the Bible, but then actually after the Bible in the different spiritual leaders that wrote on these things. And he just offers that as, as more information uh, to discover what prayer's about. And then, of course, one of my favorites, C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis had a, has a book that's not as well known. It's called Letters to Malcolm. Well, who's Malcolm? Well, Malcolm is 
nobody because C.S. Lewis has kind of made Malcolm up. But um, this is a, it, it's a correspondence. It's a fictitious correspondence with an individual named Malcolm. And in it, Lewis is writing about prayer. And so he's talking to this, this friend, Malcolm, about, you know, his thoughts on prayer. And in it, he's, he's giving you some, some insights on what he thinks clever way to write a book rather than just C.S. Lewis saying here here's this here's this he's writing to his friend Malcolm and you're overhearing a conversation these are my most recent partners on this like I said these are my notes and I wanted to share it with you so if any of these intrigue you I encourage you to take a look we're in week two of prayer the what the how and the why one of the points that I want to emphasize from last week is that in the teaching of Jesus, and this is where I want to start, Jesus' is teaching, um, let's say, I don't think it's fair to divide it into categories, but if we did, let's say that there's a category called the principles. Jesus teaches certain principles, like the golden rule, the greatest commands, and that's not exhaustive. You can think of more. But Jesus will teach certain principles, uh, like when he says, I go, he says to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. These are key principles that Jesus teaches, and they shape the rest of the teaching. Then, often to explain those, he goes into the parables. Um, so the parable will illustrate and put more uh, uh, color and description into what that principle is really all about. He does this with the uh, parable of the prodigal son when he talks about the love of a father, how much a father, uh, how much God seeks and saves those that were lost. He does this with the Good Samaritan. And specifically in that parable, the question is, what are the greatest commandments? Jesus gives the response. Uh, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's from Deuteronomy. Love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus 19. And then the one who's testing him says, well, okay, but who is my neighbor? This is where Jesus says, okay, we, we, need, to, we need to have a parable here. Because if I just, you know, if you're asking that question, then you don't understand what's really being asked here. So the parable of the Good Samaritan functions in such a way as to really invalidate the question, who is my neighbor? I mean, if you read that through and you get to the end, you realize Jesus flips it over and he says, now who was a neighbor to the one who had fallen into the hand of thieves? So if you, if you hear the command, love your neighbor as yourself, and you have to ask, yeah, but who's my neighbor? Then you don't understand the command. Jesus invalidates that question and says, the real question is, are you going to be neighborly? Are you going to show neighborly love? <clears throat> Sometimes the teaching of Jesus comes in the form of actions. There are things that he does. He is baptized. He performs signs. And when he does that, he does so in obedience to the Father. The transfiguration. It's not an accidental, incidental moment. It's meant to declare something. And the voice of God even comes to Jesus and the three who are there and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. But there are occasions where Jesus will give what we would consider specific instructions. Now, this is probably what I, 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 would, I would venture to guess many of us would just wish 
that Jesus would give us these point-by-point instructions. You know, just tell us the secret, tell us the code, tell us how it's done. But that would lead us into, I'm, I'm glad he didn't do that, because that would lead us down the path of thinking that if we just follow the procedures, then everything's okay. These specific instructions are often meant to be a practice that we practice, but we have to have the knowledge of the principles, the parables, the actions, and the gospel to back it up. But you see very few of these specific point-by-point instruction-type teachings of Jesus. I can think of when he sends out the 12 and he tells them what to take and what not to take, what to do and what not to do. I see this in Matthew 18 where he says, when your brother has sinned against you, here's what you do. Number one, you go to him. If he listens to you, you've won your brother back. If he doesn't, then you take someone that you trust. If that doesn't work, then you take the leaders. If that doesn't work, then you have a set of instructions, a procedure, a process. But, of course, all along the way, the goal is reconciliation. With the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is kind of a mix of an action and instruction, but he says, he takes the bread and he says, this is my body given for you. Eat this as often, you do this as often as you come together in remembrance of me. Same thing with the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. It's a general statement, but you baptize them and you teach them. There's a one and a two. And then with prayer. Because Jesus is asked, at least in Luke, he's asked, how? You know, teach us to pray, Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, I'm going to show you how to pray. And so I say that to say this gives us a particular interest in examining the Lord's Prayer. And I'm going to do what maybe shouldn't be done, but I'm going to do it anyway. This is how I always, you know, if you, if you follow me on social media, you'll notice that I'm always fixing stuff. Well, let me tell you, what you don't ever see pictures of are all the things that I've broken, all the things that I've taken apart and I can't figure out how to put them back together again. I'm confident that I can't ruin the Lord's Prayer. I can't. I mean, it, it's gonna, it was around a long time before I got here, and it'll be around a long time besides it belongs to Jesus. But I am going to take it into the shop here and see what we get, and maybe it'll be a mistake, but we'll see. Here is Luke 11, 2 through 4, and you have a moment where Jesus' disciples come to him, and they say, uh, John taught his disciples to pray. Now, why don't you teach us how to pray? So they're looking for the instruction. They're looking for the process. <clears throat> what are our prayers supposed to be? And This tells us a few things. First of all, it tells us that Jesus in no way invents the idea of prayer right then and there for them. Uh, Most religions, you know, even outside of Christianity, have some sense of what it means to pray to the gods, to ask for something, to request something, to, uh, you know, seek divine assistance or to ask for divine uh, favor, or even just to get the gods off your back, you know, if, if that's what you have to do. But in the Jewish tradition, you have specific examples of this, and, and John is, is teaching uh, the people, you have, you know, I'm thinking of Jewish prayers, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, Abraham, you've got conversations with God. In Solomon, we see some of his prayers recorded where he actually prays to God over the temple and dedicates it. Um, 
You know, there's there's a lot of different prayers that we can think of uh, throughout the Old Testament, and yet none of them are offered to us as, okay, here's a prayer. An exception might be when Aaron is instructed how to give a blessing over the Israelites, uh, and, and we under we you know most of us are familiar with that blessing, whether we've heard it or not. Uh, the Lord bless and keep you, make His face shine upon you, and and give you peace. And yet, you know. It, is that a prayer or is that a blessing? Well, it's a blessing more so than a prayer. But here are the disciples of Jesus, and they're interested in knowing, hey, how are we supposed to be in this thing called prayer? Because we, we, we want to understand what it is that we're doing as we're following you and following God. And keep in mind, too, that throughout the ministry of Jesus, even his closest disciples are always on this, they're teetering on this edge of understanding. They get that Jesus is the Son of God. They get it that He's the Messiah. They get it that He's the one worth following. But at the same time, they think that He's going to bring them a kingdom on earth, that He's going to help them conquer their enemies, that He's going to help them win their political freedom. Which, by the way, you know, if you hear this stuff these days about, oh, look at the church, you know, everybody's jumping on the political bandwagon and, you know, they're all getting all fired up about that. That's been around for a while. And it doesn't make it any more right, but it's been around for a while. And the church endures. The way of Jesus endures beyond that. Some folks get it wrong, just like they got it wrong. And that gives me some hope. <laughs> and I hope it gives you some hope, too. Um... So Jesus is going to teach them how to pray. And we have this text in Luke. <clears throat> the only other place we find this uh, similar prayer is in Matthew. We'll get to that next week. So Jesus offers them this. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. That's it. It's a rather simple prayer, and yet packed in to those words, and I don't think it's just because this has been remembered and rehearsed and prayed throughout the ages, but packed into that is a lot of meaning, and that's what I want to take into the workshop here. Again, these are my notes. Father, hallowed be your name. If you happen to be a Greek nerd or want to be a Greek nerd, I've, I've given you that down below. Uh, Maybe I shouldn't say Greek nerd. Is that pejorative? I don't know. Well, deal with it. Pater hagiastheto to onamasu. So there, there you go. There's your, here's your words. And then in each column, I, I've, I've written out some notes here to just kind of figure out what, what's being said here. First of all, Father. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's in later prayers, other prayers of Jesus, where he will refer to the Father as Abba which is more of the intimate, you know, kind of like uh, Papa. Or it's, a, it's a very close word. Might even be more Aramaic. But, but pater is the word more for father. This is just the relationship. It's still a relational word. And in Luke, he doesn't use our father as it is in Matthew. Which again, this might have been a prayer that Jesus taught on different occasions as an example of how to pray. But I think it's interesting to note that this is a relational term rather than a title or a proper name. That God is addressed as Father. And Jesus is not limiting that to 
himself, saying, I'm the Son of God, I get to call him Father, and none of you do. He's saying, here's how I want you to understand God as the Father. And then if you go and you look at his parables, how does he describe God as a father? In the story of the prodigal son, God is described as the father who forgives and loves, and in fact, it's scandalous. Because the father is behaving in a way that would be shameful to a community. Because he's dealing with a child who squandered his wealth and brought shame to the community, and yet this father shows him love. We sort of get sentimental about the whole thing and say, oh, that's nice, I like that story. But you've got to understand, in most cultures throughout history, and especially in that one, that was a scandalous image of the father who had been shamed, and his fathers had been shamed by the actions of this son. So Jesus instructs us to call God Father. There's an invitation in this address. Hallowed. This is tough. You're always struggling to, uh, and again, if you want to see how I translate things, I'm giving you some, some look into my notes here. You've got this verb, hagiadzo, and it means to sanctify or to make something holy. Now, when I say it's third person singular, uh, th- th- that means that, um, so, well, it's passive. Notice there, I've got the, the person, the tense, the voice, and the mood. Every, every Greek verb has a, a tense, a voice, and a mood. Tense is like past tense present tense, future tense. In Greek, you have something called aorist, okay? Uh, Let me try to make this as least boring as possible because you don't have to know any of this for a test, and I'm trying to downplay it, but like I said, you're getting my notes. Aorist means the the time frame of the verb doesn't really matter. Is it past tense? Doesn't matter. Is it present tense? Doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. So it's it's nothing. So forget the tense. Voice. Voice passive means... May your name be made holy, okay? Okay, the name's not making something holy. The name is the subject. May it be made holy. Holy by who? Well, that's the question because the passive voice leaves that open. Does that mean made holy by God? Maybe. Does that mean made holy by us? Maybe. Could it be both? Yes. The imperative is a command, which can also be a wish. May it be so. What you have here is a more positive application of the second commandment. Now, this is the point I'd want you to to go home with. The second commandment is the instruction to, you know, the followers of, of Yahweh not to take his name in vain. Don't take the name of the of your Lord in vain. Treat it as holy. And the Ten Commandments are often prescriptions of what not to do. There's a few exceptions. Keep the Sabbath holy, honor your mother and father. But here, Jesus is demonstrating for us a way to take that idea of God's name and to make it positive. Why not, you know, begin our prayers by asking that God's name be holy. The first thing you do going into this prayer is you say, God, I want your name to be made holy. I pray that your name will be made holy. Let it be holy in my life. Let it be holy in my prayer. Let it be holy in the things that I do. Let it be holy in every, everyone I meet and we share the news of who you are. Now, now that's, that's quite a thing. And I think that if we could practice that and understand what we're being say, saying there, then this is more than just a preamble, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We can make this into much more of a, notice that the fact that it is in the imperative means that this is a strong request. 
An imperative is either a command or it's a request. And so this is part of the petition. The first line is not preamble, it's petition. The name of the Father is holy. Names have power, and they're personal. The name of God is given in, in, you know, to Moses as I am, or Yahweh, which is still a unique name. Because in saying that, God is saying, you know, when, God, when Moses says, what is your name? He says, I am. He's like, I am. I will be who I will be. I am not manipulated. You do not get my name and then get to work your magic. You remember last week, we talked about the fact that, that prayer is sometimes thought of as magic, as technique. That if you say the right words in the right combination of ways, then you can spell cast and call upon the power of God. God does not engage in any of that. What's unique about God is that he is never manipulated. We never put a claim on God. Now, God, I did this, so you have to do that. That's not how God works. So the name of God here is seen as holy and revered, hallowed, sanctified, meaning that we are addressing God as the one who is gracious. In fact, isn't it interesting that if you're going to say that, you start off by recognizing this is Father. Okay, the so what column here is, and we could talk and gabble on, what are you going to do with this? So what? Okay, so what? That means that prayer opens in relationship. If we're praying to God absent of relationship, then we're missing something. Now, I'm not saying that that relationship has to be fully formed, but we need to step into the waters of relationship with God if prayer is going to grow. God is approachable, he is accessible, and in doing so, he does not lose any of his holiness or majesty. We have been invited into his presence. Prayer is not magic or spellcasting where we get to put the claim on him, but prayer is an open invitation to be in relationship with the one whose name is sanctified. Next line, your kingdom come. El theto he basileia sum. Okay. Here's this first verb there. Come. Your kingdom come. Uh, Erkamai changes in tense and it becomes elpeto. To come, to appear, to arrive, it's a common word. And, and here it's active, not passive. What's making the appearance? What's, what is it that's, that's going to come? The kingdom. And again, it's imperative. It's a request. May your kingdom come. May your kingdom appear. May your kingdom arrive. Now, that, that's, that's simple. Just let it be is, is kind of, you know, let, let, let's get there is what it's saying. The kingdom. That's the basileia. Um, that word shows up more than we actually recognize in English. Um, the English name basil. Is, uh, is, is king, it's based on the Greek, um, and you thought it was a spice. Um, this is more than political territory. The kingdom of God is not a land, okay? Jesus himself will say that my kingdom is not of this earth, otherwise my subjects would, would fight. You know, we would be just another territory on a map of territories going to war over space. But the kingdom 
can be a reference to a reign, the authority, and the royal command of a king. And that's not unique to the kingdom of heaven. When you're reading through 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Samuel, <clears throat> you'll read accounts from the Chronicles of the Kings, and it will be such and such in the kingdom of, or in the reign or the rule of such and such king, in the third year of that king's rule. That's how you mark things out. So it's like saying the current administration or a previous administration. You're talking about the, 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 uh, the decisions, the function, the work of a particular group of leadership. I was noticing reading through Supreme Court stuff that, you know, you have it, it it's all sorted out by, uh, you know, here's the Warren Court and here's the Marshall Court and then here's the Burger Court. That's the one. Great name for a restaurant. Anyway, it has all these, you know, different, um, can you see it? The, there, never mind. Anyway, um, but you, the kingdom then refers to a period, a time, a rule, and an authority. So when the prayer here is, your kingdom come, there is the desire to see God's authority realized in every way. The establishment of God's royal rule. The word here, of you, that was also used with his name. May your name be kept holy or sanctified. This hints at an address to God. Now the King James will use thy which is not, which is just a, it's just a way of saying, this is the form you use when you're addressing or speaking to one person. So again, what, what, am, I, what am I saying? I'm saying that that points to this direct communication to God. All right, so, so what about this? Why, why does this matter? Jesus is teaching us to petition a father who is also a divine king. This line is actually a political atom bomb, if you think about it. Why do I say that? I mean, you think about how glibly this is, you know, uh, has been used over the ages and how glibly even we use it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Do you understand? If the kingdom of God is realized in every way and we pray that, that means that all other authorities have to submit to that authority. That's the kind of stuff in Rome that got you killed. That's the kind of stuff that even in our day and age can get you in a lot of hot water. There's this little thing called sedition. <laughs> and kings don't like sedition. Back in the history, my, my friend Tommy Adams in Scotland, uh, he passed away a few years. He was my, one of the, he's kind of like my, you know, my, my uncle in Scotland or something like that. And, Anyway, Tommy, um, Tommy was a big fan of, in Scottish history of a group of people called the Covenanters. The Covenanters were sort of like the Puritans. They were, um, but they didn't leave the country. They were devoted to keeping the covenants of God, even if that put them in opposition to the king. And they paid for it. They paid for it often with their life. And Tommy was um, always impressed by their, their heroism and their dedication. There's a lot of those stories in history. And I think we need to realize that when we, we pray this prayer, we need to be sure that we mean that. I, I think it's okay to mean that. And I think it's okay to understand what it means. Because 
there is no other kingdom that will stand forever other than the kingdom of God. That means that every other kingdom, every other government is going to have to submit. And it, will, and it may not even endure, but the kingdom of God will. I think that's our hope. I think that's our salvation. But let's pray that prayer. Let's pray that prayer more boldly. I mean, how many kingdoms can exist? You can't have all these coexisting kingdoms. Oh, I know nowadays you can because we've got these, you know, silly little ideas of constitutional monarchies, you know, and the, you know, the king and the queen of the royal is, you know, basically a game show host, you know, they're out there opening up shopping malls or whatever and keeping the press going because of stories of their grandchildren or some such, you know, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really, they're just symbols, they're symbols. But a true, honest-to-goodness monarchy is an authority. Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray a mighty, bold prayer here. Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom appear. And then we get straight to the everyday concerns. Give us each day our daily bread. Tone our tone. Hemon ton epiusium didu hemin to hemeron. I think I got that right. Anyway, the word here for daily bread it refers to the necessity of the day. You know what is daily bread? It's the it's it's the bread that we need to get by on today. It's you know give us our share our 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 daily requirement for bread. Just give us what we need to survive. Now may seem like a silly little prayer in the year 2022. But if you've ever been somewhere where starvation and hunger is a real issue, if you've ever grown up somewhere, maybe, you know, some of us have experienced this in our own home, where we don't know what we're going to get to eat the next day. That still exists, and it still exists in this country. I heard a man talking about kids in our own city that were, you know, they were going to McDonald's to get ketchup packets because they didn't know how they were going to eat over the weekend without school meals. This is, this is heartbreaking. But throughout history, things that we now are given a little more control over could cause, you know, could be matters of life and death. So to pray to God to provide is important. And I still think it's appropriate. And just because we're more scientifically minded and we know agriculture doesn't mean that we need to start ending up like Jimmy Stewart in the movie Shenandoah. It's like, well, God, we worked for this. We planted this. And, you know, I don't really know what you had to do with it, but I guess we'll thank you for what we've got. You know, no, no, no. God still provides by whatever means. So this word is kind of unique to the Lord's Prayer. It's, 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 not, it's not praying for abundance or fertility the way pagans would pagans would pray oh lord let the you know all of the trees blossom with fruit let everything you know they would have festivals because why because what they were going to the gods with was greed more 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 and that's why fruit are often symbols of fertility because you want to be thriving and growing but here the prayer is just God you're going to give us what we need today and does that remind you of a story from the Old Testament sure the manna manna was provided on a daily basis they got what they needed 
Because they were, you know, you're not going to hoard manna. Don't do that. If you do, it'll spoil. If you do, then, then, then you're getting the wrong idea. You're taking the things that God has given you and you're, you're hoarding them and you're making them yours when they're a gift. The word here, give us, this is present tense. This is active. This is a request. It's, it's, it usually has to do with, with being generous. The giver, which is God in this case, is asked to grant or bestow. God, give us what we need today. Give us our daily allowance. It's the expectation that this Father, whose name is holy, whose kingdom we long for, is going to grant and bestow upon us what we need to make it through today. Day by day. Each day. That modifies the request, and it reminds us of the manna. Just give us today. Because we trust the future to Him. All we're asking for is what it takes for today. Now, what does that mean then? Because very few of us ever think about, well, you know, am I going to have enough food today? Well, you can apply it to more than just the daily bread. You can apply it to the, to the work of the day, to the, to the needs, the spiritual needs, the physical needs, the real needs of the day. This is both, I, I, I love this phrase now more than ever after doing this in the workshop. Because I see now that this is both a petition and a thanks. Isn't that amazing? How at the same time this statement, give us each day our daily bread, is both a request and at the same time it's a thanksgiving prayer. I can't think of any other example of something like that. Give us our daily bread. You have to say please? No. Why, Why don't you have to say please? Because you know that God's going to do it. Because he's, he's that kind of God. He's the Father. He's the King. His name is holy. The request expects that God will give us what we need. Not because we're asking, not because we're casting the technique or the magic or anything like that, but because we trust in the one who we are addressing. We've already addressed him as Father. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And just like a good king or a good father, he gives us what it is that we need. That's what a father does. He takes care of his own. That's what a king does. He takes care of his own. Now comes all this talk of sin. Forgive us of our sin. Okay. This word that we translate forgive, Aorist tense, which means don't worry about the tense. Active voice, uh, which means it's not, you know, the, the, the subject is known. And it's a request. The word means to pardon, to dismiss, to release from obligation, to let go. Now, we think of forgive often in a religious sense. And it's usually used <laughs> by people who need to be forgiven to say to other people, hey, you don't get to judge me, you got to forgive me. you got to forgive me. Kind of a get-out-of-judgment-free card. Ah, you know, you got to forgive. you got to forgive. Okay, here the request is, God, will you forgive us? In other words, release us from our obligation. And by the way, that word, afieme, uh, it's afes right there. It means more than just forgive. You know, forgive kind of rings certain religious bells for us. 
I want you to think of not only forgiving sins, but forgiving debts. Uh, letting go of grudges. This word would contain all of those meanings at once, and you don't have to make a distinction between it because it's all seen as the same thing. This has to do with the, the network of relationships, the fabric of living that we experience in this life, and the, and, the, and the problem that you and I deal with is that those often get broken, they get messed up, they get ruined and spoiled, so somebody hurts us, we have to remedy that, Maybe we hold a grudge, maybe we don't hold a grudge, maybe they hold a grudge against us. All right, the beginning in this prayer is, okay, God, first of all, we're going to seek forgiveness and release from you. That's where we begin. So I think it's important that it says us. The plea is for God to forgive the one who's praying. Forgive us. Let our offenses go. Jesus is teaching us to seek God's mercy and grace. It's both a request and a confession. And it's naming specifically our sins. God is asked to let go of the offense and transgression of our sins. Sin, now, is both a failing to measure up to the standard of His holiness, and it is also opposing God's will. It's, it's when we do something counter to God's will, and it's when we don't live up to the standard of righteousness. It's brokenness. It's, you know, it's imperfection. It's imperfection uh, of all sorts. Now, what this does is, this takes us out of the little religious game playing that, that <laughs> often plagues the church where we say, well, you know, what you got to do is, is once you sin, you got to ask God to forgive it, okay? So it's a one-to-one. You got to go, you know, you got to go check into the office every day and make sure that you get forgiven of this sin and this sin and this sin. What about the one I forgot? Well, you just ask God to forgive you of every sin you forgot, and then you're okay. That, that's fine. But I am more concerned about the attitude. The attitude that says, well, this is just a transaction with God. That, that you know, we don't want any sin hanging on us, so you got to check in. I've known people who've told me, thankfully, more in my younger years, who said, you know, like, well, when I go out, you know, I know I'm going to sin, but then I'm going to come back around and I'm going to ask God to forgive me of that sin. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. Because God does that. That's a, that's a sad state of affairs. Because Jesus is teaching us here, remember, where he's brought us so far. You've got this father who's got a holy name. And because he's got a holy name, that means he has a holy character. He is a king whose kingdom we long to see appear the justice of that king, the righteousness of that king, that authority of that king. That's the world we want to live in. That's what we've already prayed. We don't want to play games with this holy king, with this holy God. Hey, I'm going to go do my own thing, and then when I'm done, I'm going to come and make sure I don't die in my sins. I'm going to you know, pray this little prayer to you. See, the problem is, is often, we all know better than that, but sometimes when people say that, we don't know how to, we don't know how to address it. Uh, well, no, you know, it doesn't really work that way. Oh, yeah, it does, because you said that you have to do it like this. The best response to that when you encounter that is to say, you know, I'm going to pray that you grow up. <laughs> I'm going to pray that you mature. Because if you look where, God, where Jesus has taken us in this instructional prayer, he has already talked about that kingdom, that authority, this God who gives us what we need, 
even before we ask. We don't have to ask, but we do ask. And in asking, we're giving thanks at the same time. And now we know that we can depend on His mercy. So when we're saying, forgive us of our sins, we are both confessing and requesting that mercy and that grace. We are not taking the grace and the mercy for granted. We're embracing it. Which then carries over to the next line. For we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Uh-huh. Now this, reminds, this is explained later in Matthew 18 by a parable of Jesus where he fleshes this out. This is the parable of the man who owes a little and he's, or owes a lot and he's forgiven. And then he goes out and finds a servant who owes him just a little. Throttles the man, you know, you pay me up those t- ten bucks you owe me. It's like, that's inappropriate. Exactly. Now you have a phrase here, kaigar, that second word there, gar, that means because or for. That means that since, go back, forgive us our sins, because of that, that means then we forgive everyone who's indebted to us. There's a connection between, and that, that word sets that up. There's a connection between God's mercy and the mercy we extend to others. Now, I'm not talking about the power of magic word. I'm talking about what's being said here. Um, when I use the word because, I'm telling you that the condition that exists explains why I'm doing what I'm doing. Like, I, I am going to be kind to this person because... They were always there for me. Okay. So their kindness has determined my actions. Because God has forgiven us of our sins, we will let go of the offenses that others have incurred against us. There's a a connection. We forgive. Here it's the present tense. We are forgiving. Uh, And by the way, this is not the command. This is indicative mood, which means it indicates. It indicates a reality. We, and, and, it's, and it's intensified, actually. We ourselves forgive. Not just we forgive, but we ourselves. We do this. Forgive those who, have, who are indebted to us. Now, this word is not sin. This is the opposite word of forgiveness. Okay, so, uh, ophelonte is the word there. It's that second word in that Greek phrase. When you ophelonte, then the way you get rid of that is to aphiomi. Okay, you, you, that's how you take care of it. Everyone being in debt to us. This is the other side of forgiveness. I have incurred a debt against you. You mean a financial debt? Maybe. Spiritual debt? Maybe. A debt of honor? Maybe. But whatever it is, it's you, these words are used to say offense, forgiveness. Offense, forgiveness. So Jesus is describing now what life looks like in the way of the kingdom under the authority of the Father. And instead of the moral accounting that holds people in obligation and offense to one another, God is forgiving us and it's inappropriate for us to hold a grudge. In just four lines, he's carried us into this vision of God's kingdom. And we'll wrap it up right here. Lead us not into temptation. The verb here is literally to carry into something. 
okay? And it's a plea. May it not be so. That's a different mood that we haven't talked about yet. We're the objects. We're the ones who sin and who face tests and temptations of a world that is disobedient to God's rule. So we're appealing to God before this happens, and we're saying, God, keep us away from those situations. Protect us, and don't, don't lead us into situations where we're going to be tried and tested, and we're going to end up in that sinful, tit-for-tat kind of world. Don't lead us there. Lead us away from it is the implication. That, that word for temptation is the external situation, the pressure, the stress, the addiction that can lead to transgression and sin. And this goes all the way back to your kingdom come. The hope is that God's rule will be that which might not lead us into a time of trial. Now, we can get, a lot, we can get tripped up on this phrase and think that God is playing games with us. Go back and look into prayer and find your answer. Here's the Father. Here's the Father who we want His kingdom to come. Here's the Father who gives us what we need. Here's the Father who forgives us for our sins. Why then would He be playing games with us and be leading us to slaughter like some kind of a lamb? That's not what He does. Instead, what you see here is you see a God who we are depending on Him to keep us on the right path. Keep us out of those troubles. Now, we'll get more into this uh, next week because I want to do the same thing with that Lord's Prayer in Matthew, and we'll take a closer look at some of that, and we'll see how Matthew alters that just a bit. Thank you for your attention. I appreciate you being here. Uh, Let's all meet up now for worship in just 10 minutes, okay?